I don't know how old I was, but I remember it was Thanksgiving. We'd eaten a big, large holiday meal. I was stuffed. Someone brought out dessert. And I said, I'll have that because it was pumpkin pie. It's my favorite. Anyone else? Yeah, you folks know what's good. I'll have a quarter of a piece of the pie, I told my mother. These are not 8-inch pie plates or 9-inch pie. In the Northwest, we know how to make a pie, a 10-inch pie plate. I'll have a quarter of a piece of a 10-inch pumpkin pie. And she served me up just to see what would happen. I might have been 6, 7, 8, 9. Four bites, five bites, I'm full. This is too much pie, Mom. She said, uh, yeah, I thought it would be. Too much, I can't take any more. It was overambitious. I was overzealous for my pie. This is how I feel about the prophet Jeremiah today. It was a little overambitious to think in one Sabbath, we would capture the essence of Jeremiah. 54 chapters. It's a little overambitious, a little zealous to think that in one Sabbath, we could take and condense the one prophet who says the most, more prophetic speeches in Jeremiah than any other prophet. It was a little ambitious to think that this one prophet, well, there's more biographical information on Jeremiah than any other prophet in the Bible. What was I thinking in one Sabbath? My only consolation is that next week, Pastor Ken has to do Isaiah 66 chapters <laughs> in one Sabbath. What are we thinking? Jeremiah in one Sabbath, Jeremiah with names like this, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, Jehoahaz, Eliakim, Jehoiakim, Jehoachin, Zedekiah. All right, in one Sabbath? Here's what we were thinking. Biblical prophecy in the Old Testament to capture the voice of several of these significant contributors to hear what's unique and distinct, their personality, their contribution to the unfolding story we call biblical prophecy. From Amos, we learned prophecy is always the voice of God. Some of you were here? It's the voice of God. We should recognize it it's when it's prophecy. Last week from Micah, this voice speaks to broken people. We're broken. Humans have a predicament, an unsolvable predicament with our sin problem. And today, Jeremiah, what unique contribution will he make? I hope you will skim through the pages of this book this afternoon and this week. One person told me in the lobby, I've been working on Jeremiah this week. I can't wait to see what you'll do with him. He's a mess, loosely paraphrasing. He's a mess. I'll tell you why he feels like a mess, why I think he feels like a mess. He doesn't read neat and nice in a chronological, linear fashion. You begin reading Jeremiah, and a few chapters into it, a little formula, the word of the Lord came to me, and, and he jumps back two or three reigns of a king. 
And all of a sudden, you did I read this somewhere else in the Bible? Probably. And then he talks for a little while, and pretty, who's this person that showed up in the story? It, it doesn't work in a nice, straight, linear, chronological fashion. One of the challenges with Jeremiah, he doesn't do that for us. One of the most complicated books in our Old Testament in terms of how it's compiled and how it ended up in our hands. So don't get too frustrated with Jeremiah. You're not the only one who thinks he's a little confusing, who thinks maybe he jumps around, maybe he forgot his spot in the story. This is true. It's also true that Jeremiah lived a very complicated and pained life. We won't spend time talking about that this morning. The personal trauma this prophet endures, the personal anguish, and the text is colorful. He, wish, he curses the day he was born. He wishes he could just stay in hiding. In fact, he says, I will not sing music, be merrymaking with you, because he's so discouraged and so depressed about what will happen to the humans. He hides. He hides out. Curses the day he was born. Curses God who gave him this assignment. Curses God who's cursing people. Jeremiah has a tough job. Imprisoned. The scroll he writes because the king orders him to roll. They burn it in front of his eyes. Can you imagine having your words dictated? And they burn it. They tear it up in columns and burn it in the fire. I wouldn't want this job. You know, one day this week I walked into the church sanctuary and I I grumbled at Pastor Isaac, the windows are dirty over there, I said to him. The roof is being remodeled, all this dust is coming down. The windows are a mess. Who wants to come to church with dirty windows? I grumbled. And Isaac helps with some of the administrative tasks around the church, and he said, well, we could clean them. Uh, do you want them clean? I said, well, yes. Yeah. Who wants to come to church with dirty windows? He said, well, Roger tells me if we clean them, they're just going to get dirty the next day. And I looked at them, I said, they're, they're really dirty. You want them clean, don't you? Well, I'd like the people to come to church on Sabbath and look out a clean window. Would it be too much to clean the window on Friday? So Sabbath, they're clean. And I took it all back because I realized I'm grumbling. Who, dirty windows, who cares? I came yesterday, 3 o'clock, Juan was cleaning the windows. <laughs> the last task before he finished. Well, that was the big deal of my week. I don't want to trade places with the prophet Jeremiah in anguish, in hiding. We won't spend a lot of time talking about that. We won't spend a lot of time talking about the complicated political and international scene for everything in the prophets has to do with who's in control and who wants to be in control of the land we have a hard time relating. When I wake up in the morning, I rarely think about my neighbors taking possession of my property. I rarely worry about Arizona encroaching on our territory. It might be another border, but not that one. <laughs> but even then, I never worry that I'll lose my freedom or that someone will impose their power, that I'll, I'll have an overlord. Do you wake up wondering about that? Children of Israel, that was a daily concern. Who will be our overlord now? Assyria, Syria, Egypt, Babylon. That is the conversation in 
Jeremiah. We won't spend a lot of time with that, but you need to know that it's in the background. You also need to know that this thing I've been referring to as the worldview, we're not going to talk much about Jeremiah's worldview, the prophet's worldview, the worldview of the Old Testament, though we need to just keep hacking away at it a little bit at a time because it, it takes a long time to sink into that conversation the way they think their world is put together, the way they understand how the universe functions, how they attribute everything to God. So you read, the Lord sent this and the Lord cursed that and the wrath of God did thus. Yes, because in their world view, the way they believe their world to be put together, everything is attributed to God. I thought about this when I was speaking with Kathy McMillan a couple of weeks ago. She brought grapes, table grapes, to a meeting that we had. Beautiful grapes you grew from your garden. Grapes and peaches, and I think you said corn. You were putting corn up the next day, and pears are to come. A beautiful garden. She said, we've been blessed with a beautiful garden this year. Okay? And I told her, well, I grew corn once. I grew corn, and the first ear of corn, I pulled the husk off and the, all the green tassels down, and on my ear of corn, on my cob of corn, where all the kernels line up straight in a row, I had randomly placed kernels, hardly any, but if you turn the ear of corn, corn over, one kernel on the back side, huge, dark purple, almost black, like a mutant corn. You couldn't eat my corn. Worldview of the Old Testament. The Lord is blessing the Macmillans. The Lord is smiling on the Macmillan garden. They're righteous in the sight of the Lord. Their children grow upright. Lisa, you and Mark grow upright. You're pleasing. So you have an abundant crop. The Lord is frowning on us. I won't put it on the girls. I'll just keep it right here on us. <laughs> you are not righteous in the eyes of the Lord. You are not pleasing the Lord. You have strayed from God. Therefore, you grow mutant corn. You can't even eat what comes out of your garden. The Lord gave you that corn. The Lord gave you your corn, the worldview of the Old Testament. We have to keep working away and understanding that. It helps us understand the language that we're reading and, and how maybe the worldview you and I have is just shifting a little bit from that. Maybe they get a garden because they water. <laughs> they weed. Jim goes out every morning and talks to the fruit and vegetables. <laughs> I don't think I make this up. I'm, I think that's true. Maybe that's why they get a good garden. Humans with free will affect what happens in our world. Worldview of the Old Testament. What you can't miss when you open Jeremiah and what we will discuss today is that these broken people with a sin problem, who Micah described last week, and now we're several years fast forward, these same broken people with a sin problem have very real, critical, urgent, physical needs. For right in their very midst, their city is crumbling. Jerusalem is going down. 
Jeremiah agrees with Micah. Now Isaiah, who stands around the same time, says, no, Jerusalem will survive. Jeremiah says, no, it won't. And Jeremiah knows because Jeremiah was present just before. Jeremiah was present while it was coming down. Jeremiah is present after the city collapses. Saw it all. The temple of Solomon, the palace of the king, the porticos in the city, the homes, the streets destroyed. Jerusalem is in a rubble and Jeremiah is hiding. Some of the Jews who hadn't been carried off to Babylon, they come to Jeremiah and say, you need to get out of the city. He doesn't want to go. They throw him over their shoulder and cart him down to Egypt. They force him to leave the beloved city of Jerusalem. What you can't miss in Jeremiah is that they really are in a state of doom. So it is in this state of doom and destruction, Jeremiah stands in this gap during the exile. People are gone from their beloved city. And what I want to know is from that vantage point, what does Jeremiah say? From the vantage point of destruction and doom and being deported, what does Jeremiah say? Impending, undeniable doom. Jeremiah spends very, very lot of time, a lot of time in this book, describing this doom. And it starts in chapter 1, verse 14, from the north the text reads, a boiling pot will be tilting out and spilling towards the south. From the north, disaster from the north. An army coming from the north. A great commotion, he says, will come from the north. Chapter 15, iron from the north. Chapter 46, a gadfly coming from the north. The waters are rising in the north. From the north, she will be captured. From the north, her land will lay waste. And pretty soon we get the idea in Jeremiah, you read all the way to the end, you understand the north doesn't have to be identified, doesn't have to be labeled in a concrete fashion anymore. The north is just the enemy. It's a personification. We understand when we read in Jeremiah, the north, it's like saying, Houston, we have a problem. The north, the north. Last month, an article was written Describing an unusual alliance, the board from the Apple Corporation invited Google's CEO to sit with them. Did you read some of you who pay attention to these types of stories? Google will now sit in the inner sanctuary, the most holy place, with Apple. Would you let your competitor in on your board? The person writing the article, the journalist said, Everyone knows that Google and Apple have an enemy in the north. <laughs> Nobody had to mention Microsoft. They have an enemy in the north, it said in the New York Times. Ah, we have a journalist who knows about a biblical metaphor. Don't even have to name the enemy. In the north, an enemy is coming out of the north. And Jeremiah... Jeremiah says, this enemy will challenge us to the very destruction of Jerusalem. 
It's among the most catastrophic times in the history of Israel, and I would suggest one of the most catastrophic times for God. The reputation of God on the line even. When the children of Israel go into exile, Rembrandt displays Jeremiah weeping over Israel in a very pointed fashion. Israel gone. So what does the prophet of doom, Jeremiah, say when he's standing in the gap? When his city's been destroyed, when he's been taken off to Egypt, and most of his friends, most of his Israel clan is in Babylon. This is what I believe he says, and I think it's said even more clearly in Jeremiah than what we learned last week from Micah. Israel has a sacred certainty. That's how I'm going to say it. Israel has, a, there is something certain for them, and it's a sacred certainty. Israel is loved by God. You cannot miss that in the book of Jeremiah. Over and over again in the language, it's evident. Now, this is a change from Amos, all this doom talk in Amos, and he holds out with one little, one little chapter of hope, a few verses at the end. But in Jeremiah, the language of God's love for Israel is woven in and all around. Jeremiah 14, and we'll move around through the book. Remember I said it's not in a chronological fashion. Jeremiah 14, verse 16. Speak this word to them. Let my eyes overflow with tears, night and day without ceasing. For my virgin daughter, my people, has suffered a grievous wound, a crushing blow. It's the voice of God. Jeremiah chapter 6. Verse 22, verse 26. O oh, my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes, mourn with bitter wailing as for an only sudden son, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon who? Will it go upon Israel? Will it go upon you? The destroyer comes upon who? Us, God says. Jeremiah 31, this is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. Rachel, another metaphor for God, weeping for her children. When God blesses, God blesses my people. When God indicts, God indicts my people. When God mourns and cries, God mourns over my people. When God's people have an enemy, it's my people who have an enemy. You can't miss it in the book of Jeremiah. Am I just finding what I want to find in Jeremiah? No, you cannot miss it. It's everywhere woven in. God is deeply attached to these people. Last week I said God is embedded in the human situation. The human's predicament is God's predicament. Jeremiah has made it even more clear. God is deeply attached. God is going nowhere. These are my people who are suffering. These are my people that I want to rescue. Even more, though, you can't miss that God's commitment to Israel intensifies during this time period. It makes no sense but it's here in the text. I don't understand it, but I read it. Jeremiah 33. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the houses in the city and the royal palaces of Judah that have been torn down. Jerusalem's in destruction now, destroyed. Jeremiah 33, verse 6. Nevertheless, 
I will bring health and healing to it. I will bring my people and I will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity. I will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all the sins they have committed against me. I will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Then this city will bring me renown, joy, praise, and honor before all the nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it. And, and they will be in awe, and they will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I have provided for it. You think that's a unique text? Jeremiah 32 now, verse 37 I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banished them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people. I will be their God. I will give them a singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will never stop doing good to them. I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. You think I've just done selective reading? Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Now this is written to those who are in exile. They're sitting in Babylon, and a letter arrives. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, though I was a husband, declares the Lord." This is the covenant I will make. A new covenant now is coming to these people who are in exile. This is the new covenant. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will anyone teach his neighbor or teach his brother saying, Know the Lord. Highly unusual. It's the only way people learn of God, to be taught. I have to teach you. You have to teach me. We have to teach our children. But something new is happening. God is taking the covenant to the next level. He's turned it up a notch. There's something new happening. You're not going to have to teach anybody. I will write it on your hearts. And how will they know that I am their God? The end of the text says, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. How will you know I'm the, your God? I will be the God who forgives you. I will be the God that does not remember your sins. Now let me ask you, has there been one day of obedience out of Israel? Can we find one person? In fact, Jeremiah asks, can, is there one worthy person? Could we find one person? person who's had one perfect day in the sight of this God. One? There has been zero 100% scores. We can find no one today. We can find no one then who was perfectly obedient in the sight of God. And God says, you didn't keep your covenant with me, but that's okay. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to increase my commitment. Do you know anybody who talks like that? You break your promise to me. Am I going to increase my commitment back to you? You violate your end of our arrangement. Well, I give you more? No, burn me once. God says, 
Not one day in your life have you obeyed. Here's what I'm going to do. In exile even, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write my covenant on your heart. I will remember your sins no more. You are forgiven. These broken people are now redeemed. In the Old Testament, there is the gospel. Do they deserve that? Did they earn that? Of course not. In the book of Jeremiah, we find God increasing his commitment. Am I just finding the texts I want to find to share with you? Go read yourself and ask. But for me, there is something even equally powerful. While they're in exile, while they're on foreign soil in Babylon, here comes this letter from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29, and I'll begin with verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here is your instruction. I don't know what they expect to hear. I haven't been in exile. I asked first service, has anyone been exiled here? Anyone forced to leave their home? Did anyone here have to flee from a country? Is, is there anyone like that here today in second service? Forced to leave because you were not safe? There was one first service who didn't want to identify herself, but she told me afterwards, I had to flee. Yugoslavia. I moved to Yugoslavia and here and there, World War II. Yeah, I know what it is to be in exile. There are people all around the world today who know exactly this situation. We're reading, but most of us here haven't been in exile. What word would you like to hear from God your, and from your prophet Jeremiah? When you're in exile, I don't know what you do. Do you, do you sing songs about Yahweh? Do you tell your stories and remember the good days? Do you as some of the women in the Holocaust did, write, write your recipes down and remember what you can so you can tell your children about your heritage? What do you do in exile? You sit around and hold hands and pray for it to be over? Here comes a letter from Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, the first line, build houses. Build houses in Babylon. Live in them. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. You're going to eat the food produced by Babylonian soil. Live there. Take wives. Have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and daughters. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease, but also see the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. See to their welfare and pray to the Lord on behalf of the city. Pray for Babylon while you're in exile. Plant, build, give in marriage, have your families. Later in the text he says, for 70 years you'll be there. Metaphor for a lifetime. Because there are prophets running around Babylon saying, you'll only be here a little while. Jeremiah sends a letter and says, settle down, dig in, because you're probably going to be there for a lifetime. Build houses. And when you read the beginning of Jeremiah, these lines, 
pluck up, tear down, build, plant. Jeremiah's instructions from God when he's first called as a prophet. I bet he never thought those would be words for his people, Israel. I bet he thought they'd be plucking down and tearing up the enemy. But here they've been plucked down, torn up. Now in exile comes the text. Build, plant, harvest, eat, do something. Pray for your captors. Pray for your captors in exile. I am not sure this is at all what they had in mind in Babylon. That this is what they would be doing with their time. Build and plant and grow and make productive from Babylonian soil. You do not have to read to the book of Revelation to find out what the remnant should be up to. For we might all agree this morning, we are in some sort of exile ourselves, aren't we? I know personal pains and traumas and, and all sorts of pockets of personal exile, but as a people even yet, a greater exile, we would say, because we're not home in the kingdom consummated, we're in exile, aren't we? We're pilgrims and strangers. I will tarry, I will tarry but a while, the Advent hymn says. Are we agreeing on that? We are in exile here. What do you do while you're in exile? Jeremiah says you plant, you build, you have families. There's a wedding this afternoon, the Parker family. You have weddings. We dedicated a baby this morning, a very traumatic story where a young adult has taken custody and now she has to give him back, give the baby up after seven months. It's a very difficult time in worship this morning for a whole group of young adults who gathered. What do you do in exile? You nurture a baby who has no home. The prophet Jeremiah says, build houses, have families. Last Sabbath, 1.30, a quarter to two, you were all gone home. But Bud Defner was in the balcony leaning over. He was waiting for a video, a, a DVD to be recorded so he could take some things down to the villa. Leaning over the balcony, and I came from my office here and peeked out, and Bud was there leaning over, and he said, Chris, I have to tell you a story. Come here. I, have I ever told you about the time when we first gathered and, and we took our first offering? I've probably told you, but you're going to listen again. Chris, come out here and listen to me. You talk just like that, Bud. You know you do. He, he does, doesn't he? You, you all know this guy. And I can talk like him too if I get going long enough here. <laughs> Happened first service, bud. I'm your new Im imposter here. <laughs> you come out here, Chris, and listen to my story. He's leaning over the balcony, observing an empty sanctuary. We know Bud is one of our charter members, that, that dwindling group of special, special saints. He's leaning over the balcony and he says, do you remember that we started with just eight of us in a branch Sabbath school class and, and we gathered together and we passed the offering around and the offering was about $3.50. And well, what do you do with $3.50, Chris? We looked at each other and we needed to build a house for God. And what, 
We looked at our leader, Brother Frost from China, a missionary who was there, and Bud says, I said to him, we have to build a house worthy of God, $3.50. What are we going to do with that? Some people said, go over there on K Street and rent that little storefront over there. There's an insurance building, tiny little space. That should be your church. They pray. Brother Frost says, if the Lord wants another house in the Ukaipa Valley, the Lord will build it. And they keep passing the offering plate, and they keep passing the offering plate. And Bud's standing up there over the balcony last week saying, and look what the Lord built. This is what the remnant do. The text says you build and you plant and you have your families and you do unto the glory of God. So the roof is off now. Forty years that roof lasted. Forty years. It's a 40-year facelift, I've been saying. God, 40 years, that's about right now on my face. <laughs> I'll have one now. I'll have one in another 40 years. Maybe that roof will last 40 more if we're still in exile. That's what you do when you're in Babylon. You pray for the city, you build and you plant and you make God's house so the glory of God can be seen in this area. So stay tuned because the end of the month you're going to hear from your finance committee in two weeks. And they're going to help us understand how we have this vision for this house of God that by the end of the year we can raise this $250,000 and be done with this facelift and get on to the next thing the remnant can be doing. There is a school across down the street that we take care of. There are students here. There are people everywhere in our valley. What do the remnant do while they're in exile? They build, and they plant, and they marry, and they eat, and they pray for the city, and they keep on going, and they can do this because they are redeemed. This is really what Jeremiah the prophet wants to know. What are you going to do with this God who says you're broken and I'm redeeming you? What will your answer be? Do you know where you were June 28, 1992, 4.57 a.m.? Some of you know. 1992. It is probably the closest I thought I've ever come to dying. June 1992, 4.57 a.m., the earthquake was in Landers, 7.3 on the Richter scale. Do you remember where you were, those of you who lived local? Do you remember what happened in your household? And then three hours later, when the big bear quake came on the heels of it, it is the biggest earthquake we've felt. We're not sure how in our house it happened on autopilot. We had not rehearsed this. I went to the baby's room. Kirby went to the toddler's room. And somehow, 30 seconds later, we were all underneath in the living room together. And we looked up and realized that happened without anybody saying anything. And I have the baby with her pacifier, and the only thing we can't control is the shaking. And you all felt that if you lived local. And didn't it feel like forever? For the baby, I think it felt like a lullaby being rocked. 
And I was going through the checklist in my head, the water, did we get enough? Did I get the small bills? I just read a report. You're supposed to have $5 bills and $1 bills in case of earthquake because people are going to be gouging you for a gallon of water. Need small bills. Did I get dog food? Do we have baby food? Do we have diapers? Just the list goes on and on. I'm not paying attention, but over on this side where the other one is being held, the toddler has her little hands clasped, and she's saying, Oh, Lord. Two and a half years old. Oh, Lord, don't leave us here. Lord, save us. Save us. We don't want to die. Save us. It is the prayer God wants to hear. God wants to hear his people say yes, that we will let him redeem us. Save us. Save us. We don't want to die. We want to do this work. Jeremiah wants to know, how do we answer? So now, may this faithful God, this redeeming God, give you sacred certainty. You are redeemed. Go forth and plant and build and have families and carry on the agenda of God. In the name of Jesus, amen.